This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Well, everybody, the Major League Baseball season has ended. And so, it's been a while, but let's do, for old time's sake, one final Joey Gowell update for the 2023 season. It's the Joey Gallo update. And let's remember the world champions this year were the Texas Rangers. Where did Joey Gallo start his career for his first seven seasons? Oh, no. Yes, the Texas Rangers. Oh, he missed out. Darn. And, yeah, we haven't done this in a long while, primarily because he hasn't played since September 5th. And he ended the season with 282 at-bats, 21 homers, 40 RBIs. He had a stolen base, which is kind of weird because he's not really a stolen base threat. But his batting average was 177. And the number of strikeouts he had, he broke that ratio. I told you guys earlier that historic ratio, I don't know how many people had ever gotten a strikeout Every two at-bats, or in other words, striking out 50% of the time, Joey Gallo did it. 142 strikeouts and 282 at-bats. And he hasn't been DFA'd yet. But I got good news. He improved his batting average this season from 160 to 177. So a 17-point improvement. Well, good for you, Joey Gallo. So now we can officially put this stupid gimmick to bed. This one will come up with more stupid gimmicks. Isn't that right, Greg? Oh, we got something planned for the winter months. (laughs) Stay tuned for that. Hey, show open. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is... It was a thing on TV. Punisher, control! Hey, before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 425, submission number 1069. Nice! We're talking about a show called Nice? No. I wish. Sorry. The Stranger. The Stranger aired on the ABC, that's the Australian Broadcasting Commission, from April 26, 1964 to July 25, 1965, for 12 episodes. Hey, that's three quarters of a crock block. 12 divided by 16 is three fourths. I bet you didn't know that unless you know math. But also, that 12 episodes is a whole four less than Uncle Croc's Block, the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, Schooled, J.J. Starbuck, Misfits of Science, the number of aired episodes of Salvage One, and Little Bush, and Tiger King, and probably hundreds of thousands of other shows. And it's the same number of episodes, The Stranger, as Loki. 
Oh, so one stranger block is equal to a Loki block? Yes. By the way, Mike, I got a question. In Cleveland, have you ever encountered a man trying to sell you a jet ski? Once or twice. Did he ever say to you if you were interested in buying a jet ski? Wow. What trap am I falling into? Nothing. Hey, Chico, have you seen episode five of Loki yet? I have. Oh, it's a Loki thing. I thought it was okay. a stranger thing. Okay, Okay, let me explain the joke, okay? In episode five, they reveal that Owen Wilson's character was originally a jet ski salesman in Cleveland. You're amazed by that. You know what? You don't even have to uh, do the free trial of Disney Plus. Just look for the synopsis online. Do they sell it, jet skis in Cleveland? Of course. They, there's a giant fucking lake two miles away from here. Okay, didn't there really is. Okay. Yeah. Oh, also, let's remember what type of school I work at. Aviation and maritime. So, yeah, we deal with jet skis. Okay. Creepy opening music. Nineteen sixty-three. Doctor Who premieres the day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which is really weird considering it premiered the day after like a major news event. But that's besides the point. This show, Doctor Who, became an immediate smash in England. Well, actually, didn't it sort of start out slow and then just got ramped up with the second story involving exterminate exterminate oh yeah that is true that's all covered in that doctor who tv movie about the uh william Hartnell era the adventure in space and time by the way if you ever find it buy it so okay doctor who it's a big smash in england so what do you do when there's a big smash on television you try to create a bigger smash by spinning it off True. Or you try and create a bigger smash by copying it. That's right. You decide everyone loves this show, so you decide if you're in another country and you're seeing what's going on in this country. You know what? We're going to make our own Doctor Who. With Blackjack and hookers! That's actually going to factor into our next episode, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So this is Doctor Who with Australian blackjack and Australian hookers? Yeah. Well, well I, and that, seriously, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, to do any sort of, like, you know, double entendres there or some sort of, like, fancy speak, but it's it's basically Doctor Who with Australian blackjack and hookers. Pretty much. Only except for time traveling inside a British phone box. We just have an odd gentleman who says he has memory loss, 
but is actually an alien who is missioned to Earth. What was he sent to Earth to do? Who knows? This story was created by, and all of the episodes were written by, a man by the name of G.K. Saunders. He wrote it as a six-part radio series for the BBC in 1963, about a month and a half after Doctor Who premiered on the television side. And his treatise is, and I have this from Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, a schoolmaster finds an unconscious young man on his doorstep, sound familiar? Takes him in and looks after him. A friendship develops between the stranger and the headmaster's children, sound familiar? And their friends leading them to discover the stranger's secret. He is from another planet and has been sent to find a new home on Earth for his people. The stranger and fellow alien Varosa live in a society without books where they have to memorize everything. So, so far, this is just a very staid phone home strategy. We need a new home for our people. But then comes season two of the show, which just goes absolutely bat insane. The children have to enlist the help of the Australian Prime Minister when Peter is kidnapped by the alien, and a procession of intrigues eventually leads them to the alien's home planet of Soshunis. Unfortunately, there is not a final battle between Earth and Shosunis, where the Earthlings have to either drive the aliens back into space or into the ground. That would have been interesting. That is the crappiest name for a planet. Shosunis. What the hell kind of name is that? I have no idea. Anyway, the radio show, which aired on BBC Home Service, Star David Spencer, not the gospel singer-songwriter that I went to college with, but David Spencer as the stranger, Adam Suisse. David Spencer, best known for being primarily a radio actor, but was also in Doctor Who once or twice. The early episodes, of course. But yeah, this is one of those shows that was created abroad to capitalize on the success of Doctor Who. We can't use a British phone box, but we can use an alien. And obviously, an alien's going to have a flying saucer. Because all the kids love flying saucers. So the ABC is thinking, Doctor Who, but make it the day the Earth stood still. Hold on a second, I got a question. Were the flying saucer ice cream sandwiches out by 1964? Was that later? Let me take a look. They could have done a tie-in with the flying saucer ice cream sandwiches. First thing I need to do is learn how to spell flying saucer. S-A-U-C-E-R. Okay. The flying saucer ice cream cookie sandwich. 
a fine Carvel product, by the way. I've got the year for it. 1951. Oh, see? Missed opportunity. The ABC in Australia, they could have contacted Tom Carvel. He could have gotten it licensed to Australia. They could have done like a thing. You know, they could have done Reese's Pieces like 18 years early. Adam the Stranger is eating some ice cream. He puts some cookies on the ice cream. And then afterwards, you can have Tom Carvel like do a promo at the end saying, probably going to do a terrible Tom Carvel here. Our ice cream's pretty good. Please visit them. Thank you. I didn't know Tom Carvel sounded like Wilford Brimley. <laughs> I told you it was a terrible Tom Carvel. But that delivery was what he did in all those stupid promos he did. Now, you know, if this actually got sent to Australia, they could have had, like, Cookie Puss Mite. It could have been, like, Vegemite-flavored ice cream in Cookie Puss form. Crocodile Cookie Puss. There you go! We're just like printing money for a Carvel at this point. Or even better. Crocodile Hunter flying saucer. Oh, too far. Too far, Greg. Too far. Bring it back. Bring it back. You hit a nerve there. So who is the stranger and who are the people who are around the stranger? Well, the ABC brought on a man by the name of Ron Hadrick to play Adam Sweeze. Ron Hadrick, a South Australian cricketer turned actor, best known on our hemisphere for Quigley Down Under, which I believe was a Tom Selleck joint. Yes, it was. Playing the role of Gene Walsh is Janice Dinan, who, again, was in a whole lot of Australian productions, but died in the UK when she fell from a bus in 1974. It's a very sad story. Oh my god! Why did you have to mention that? It was a major bullet point in her bio on IMDb, okay? In the role of Bernard Walsh, we have Bill Levis, and aside from a couple of other movies in the 60s, this is as far as his movie career went. Time out. Is he any relation to Will Levis? Sadly, no. Oh. Hey, remember when Will Levis was a thing for about a week? You know, every time I hear Will Levis's name, I this is going to be the most obscure thing I probably have ever said on this podcast, and that's saying a lot. I think of, like, this commercial for, like, the Levitz furniture chain here in New York. Oh my gosh, that's deep. Yeah, that's it. You're living at Levitt. They had okay. So here's the thing. I lived out west for like my early life. They have the Levitt stores out there. They also had the Sam Levitt stores. Not to be confused. I'm surprised no one's done that joke for Will Levis. Will you love it at Levitt's? You love it at Levitt's. I'm sure Chris Berman is writing that up right now. Playing Peter Cannon is Michael Thomas, who is also primarily known for just this one show. He was an Australian guy from that Australian thing in the 60s. As Mr. Walsh, we have John Fasson, who was in an episode of Home and Away, 
which has a bit of a cult following here in America. But also, guys, he was the choral director in the Facts of Life Down Under. Oh, no, another reference to Facts of Life Down Under? What the heck? I hope he shared a scene with Tootie. Playing his wife, Mrs. Walsh, Jessica Node was also in a whole lot of Australian stuff, including two Australian shows with fan bases here in America, Home and Away, and Neighbors. Everybody, I totally screwed that name. Everybody loves good neighbors. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. And sometimes you'll see Chris Hemsworth and Margot Robbie. That's when good neighbors become good friends. Everybody! I was afraid you were going to say that Jessica Note was also in The Facts of Life Down Under. And then as Professor Mayer, we have Owen Weingott, who is not in The Facts of Life Down Under but was on 22 episodes of a show called Dynasty. Not that show. Another show. So, okay, let me get this clear. It's not the original or the CW reboot with Liz Gillies. Right. It is another show called Dynasty. And looking at his IMDb, he was also on another show called Riptide. No, there's no Tom Bray in this show. So he was in another Dynasty and another Riptide and another Hunter. What? Is he in all the American shows that had similar sounding titles in Australia? He was also in another show called Homicide. Now, time out. I got a question. Did Red Grundy make versions of all these shows that have similar names to the other? Why the hell not? Now, I'm taking a look to see if the Dynasty has a Ridge Grundy in it, and I'm guessing not. But Ridge Grundy was too busy stealing game shows, not uh, any other format. And rounding out the cast, we have Reg Livermore as Barossa. Reg, pretty much known for just this show. But he did play roles in various versions of Anything Goes, The Tempest, and The Pirates of Penzance. Ooh, The Pirates of Penzance. Not only did he play Frankenfurter in the original 1974 Australian cast of The Rocky Horror Show, he attended the same high school as Australian actors Adam Garcia, Andrew Johnson, Hugo Weaving, Writer Stuart Beatty, radio host John Laws, and acting, singing, dancing guy Hugh Jackman. That's pretty much the cast of The Stranger. So what kind of adventure would The Stranger and his newfound family get into? You want to talk about him? Wait, hold on a second. I think we're going to do a first year. We're going to do a time travel thing. We're going to have the Chico in the past recap these episodes and then get back to us in the present. Yes, because I don't know if you see my Zoom background, but... Yeah, for those who are not on the video, which is everybody. Everybody but us three, for clarity. Yes. 
Chico's background is the tortoise. So he borrowed Ed Begley's tortoise. We asked Ed to borrow the tortoise for like a little bit. And so we asked present Chico to go to tell past Chico, hey, we need you to recap these episodes for us. Oh, I think we need to actually talk about your background, too, because apparently uh, Aurora Borealis is happening in your kitchen. That's true. I got some steamed hams from Burger King, which is, as we all know, a regional dialect to upstate New York. But you're a Long Island guy. He's close enough to Utica. What, two-hour drive, Greg? Three-hour drive? It's an Albany expression, thank you very much. Not a Utica expression, Mike. Get it straight. (laughs) Okay, let me communicate with my past self here. Episode 1. A mysterious stranger appears on the doorstep of the Walsh family's home one stormy evening. With no memory of his own name or how he came to be there, the family shelter him for the night, and he assumes the name... Adam Sweeze. Impressed by his advanced linguistic skills and intelligence, Mr. Walsh offers Adam a teaching job. His teenage children, Bernie and Jean, along with their friend Peter Cannon, discover a strange communication device among Adam's possessions. Episode 2. Adam is away bushwalking in the Blue Mountains and the children break into his room again. They find books that they think are strange. He comes back, and later he asks if they broke in. They say yes. He explains the books and says the device is a radio for local broadcasts, and he has left it in the mountains where he stays. Bernard, one of the children, says that flying saucers were seen at Canley in the Blue Mountains the last weekend. Adam says he did not know this. The next weekend, he goes to Canley again. The children follow him on the next day's train. They're going to watch him. They go bushwalking and find labels from books from their school. They come across Suisse and then find a flying saucer ahead of them. A man comes out, sees them, and shouts out to Adam in a strange language. Episode 3 The children encounter Adam outside the flying saucer. Adam admits that the machine comes from his homeland. He admits he has not lost his memory, but he wanted to live amongst them to learn things. He brings out the man from the flying saucer and says he is the pilot, Varosa. He then uses a form of hypnosis to convince the children to come with him to his homeland. They all get in the flying saucer. The next thing you know, Mr. Walsh has reported the children is missing, and the police say they're just hiding. Mr. Walsh receives a letter from Jean, postmarked Venezuela, in which she says she cannot explain what has happened and will return, but she's not sure when. The letter was posted the day after they disappeared and took only four days to get to Australia. Meanwhile, the children have been transferred from the flying saucer to another machine, the mothership. Adam then tells the truth and tells a story about a planet where people lived, but an accident happened that poisoned the planet. When the planet, Shoshunis, was poisoned, clever people went to one moon and survived. 1,000 people wandered onto the moon for a few centuries looking for a suitable planet. There are now only 300 people. 
Later, Varosa explains about his first trip to Earth. Episode 4. The children are now on the moon and meet some of the survivors, including the female leader. So Shun reveals that Sinchi, Adam's real name, will take the children back to Australia with Varosa. After the children leave her presence, Soshun talks to the elders in a way that implies some menace to Earth. They all return in the flying saucer and when back home, the children tell their parents about what has happened. They do not believe them. The police arrive and question the children and the aliens. Sweeze advises he does not know how old he is as they have no concept of years. Adam and Verosa are arrested. Mr. Walsh contacts Professor Mayer, who speaks to the children. He advises that he will make arrangements so that the children can secretly take him to the Flying Saucer. The next day, they take the professor to the Flying Saucer, wearing blacked-out glasses so he does not know the location. Bernie shows the professor how the saucer works, and two uniformed police arrive. They have followed them. While Peter and Jean restrain the professor, Bernie pilots the saucer into the air. Episode 5 After taking off in the flying saucer, the children contact the Soshun and speak to her via a video phone. They tell her what has happened and ask for her help. She sends a guide ship to them. Meanwhile, the two police contact their superior, who contacts the RAAF. That's the Royal Australian Air Force. The captain advises the saucer is not theirs and they will act. The RAAF buzzes the flying saucer with jets. The police advise Mr. Walsh what has happened and that the security forces are now involved. The guide ship arrives. The pilot is transferred from the guide ship and takes over. The pilot cannot speak English. The RAAF pilot advises the captain that they lost the two ships at 54,000 feet. The professor and the children meet the Soshun and advises he will write letters for the children to post once they return to Earth. These will, he says, explain everything. The RAAF officers fly to Canberra and go to Parliament House to brief the Prime Minister. It is revealed that radar tracked the ships to 130 miles where they were joined by another larger vessel. They then went to 5,600 miles and then 50 to 60,000 miles where they landed on a small moon. The children return and are met by police and Colonel Nash from security. He questions the children. They tell him Professor Mayer has stayed on the Shoshunis to study them. Bernie advises the colonel that the Shoshunisi want to settle on Earth. Adam and Verosa escape from the police and ask Bernie to help hide them till he contacts the mothership to collect them. Episode 6. Bernie hides Adam and Verosa in the school's tower. The flying saucer lands at Idlewild Airport. Looks like it was really the ABC Gore Hill property, but whatever. And Professor Mayer gets out. He is then taken away by some people in a large American car with UN stickers and the saucer departs. The children are questioned by the police and Colonel Nash to find where Adam and Verosa are hiding. Professor Mayer is taken to the UN headquarters in New York and presents the case that the aliens be permitted to land on Earth. He advises that they want to share their knowledge with all nations. Mayer phones Mr. Walsh and speaks to Bernie, saying he must stop the aliens leaving in the flying saucer. It arrives to collect them, and Bernie and Peter tell Adam and Verosa. 
The saucer leaves without them. Two police officers pass them all over to Nash and the chief inspector. Nash advises that Adam and Verosa will be sent by plane to New York. Episode 7. The news of the aliens has leaked and been published to the press in New York. U.S. Senator Anderson is involved. It is decided not to send Adam to New York for the time being. The Walsh's house is under siege by the press. It is decided to let Adam and Verosa stay in the school playhouse. Meanwhile, Peter is snuck out and is trying to contact the mothership via the radio. They hear him, but there appears to be some conflict going on, and they do not reply. Remember the radio, by the way? Professor Mayer flies to Sydney with his son, Edward. Apparently, a new male, Soshun, has been elected who says the aliens must come to live on Earth. This happened because the old Soshun wanted Earth to invite them to come. The flying saucer lands in the school grounds. The pilot hypnotizes Peter and makes him enter the saucer. And they leave. Episode 8. A very rich man, Rudolf Lindenberger II, comes to see Professor Mayer and tries to talk him into letting him get some sort of access to the aliens for monetary gain. Mayer goes to with his son. Sorry about that. Chico's computer might have been playing havoc there. He meant to say, Mayer goes to Sydney with his son. Back in Sydney, there are people protesting outside the Walsh home. Some for the aliens, some against. The flying saucer with Peter on board lands on the alien moon. The pilot takes him into a room in a cave where the new Soshun is in charge. The old Soshun comes in and talks to Peter. She explains what has happened and that she does not agree with the new Soshun's plan about Earth. That this is to invade the Earth if need be. She says they have one weapon. The new Soshun says he is keeping Peter on the moon as a hostage. Lindenberger buys all the other seats on the plane and flies to Sydney with Mayer and his son. Once in Sydney, they go to the Walsh house and then are advised that they are to drive to Parks, where the radio telescope is located. When a police sergeant goes to talk to Adam, he is hypnotized. The senior constable draws his gun on Verosa, who hypnotizes him. Adam advises that they are leaving. Adam then hypnotizes the children and Edward Mayer. Lots of hypnotism on this episode. Adam and Verosa attempt to escape, but Verosa is shot by a policeman. And Adam hijacks a car. Episode 9. Verosa is taken to hospital. Colonel Nash's driver comes back and says he took Nash somewhere. This was really Adam. He too was hypnotized. Everyone leaves the Walsh house, and they are followed by Lindenberger's man, Blake, as well as media cars. Out in the bush, they swap cars while police pull over the media and Blake. Adam catches a train to Parks. The car with everyone in it goes via Mudgy to Parks. The Shoshun says he wants to write a letter to the Prime Minister and will send it back with Peter to Parliament House. The Shoshun sends his thoughts to Peter to put in the letter. They arrive at the park's radio telescope and Professor Mayer goes inside with Nash. A technician pulls apart the radio to try and discover the frequencies it uses so they can use the telescope to talk to the Shoshunis moon. The telescope is used to find the moon and seems to locate it. Episode 10. Defense authorities in Australia have located the satellite Shoshunis using the park's radio telescope 
and Mayer is shocked to learn nuclear weapons will be used if hostilities arise. Adam communicates to Jean through a dream which directs her to a post office in Bunyul, a deserted mining town outside Parks. Jean decides to sneak out of the Parks compound to find Adam. Meanwhile, Peter has been left comatose in the courtyard at Parliament House with a letter from the Soshun. This is taken to the Prime Minister's office, while Peter is taken to hospital, and then Sydney. Jean locates the post office, and inside the postmaster has a letter for her. The letter has a map and instructions that Adam is hiding in a shed in the Bunyula showground. Bernie and Edward meet Jean, and they locate Adam's hideout. Here, the children learn that Verosa was shot and captured by the police. Adam asks them to bring the radio, which he can use to speak to the little ship, one of which is always waiting nearby. They agree to get it. Lindenberger's man, Blake, follows them and overhears the conversation with Adam. Professor Mayer rebukes Colonel Nash about how they plan to treat the Soshunites. Nash says they will be telling the Soshunites what to do. The letter from the Soshun says that Peter's coma is a demonstration of their power. Edward tells his father about Verosa. Adam seems to sense that something has happened. Episode 11. Lindenberger's henchman attempts to steal Adam's communication device from Professor Mayer at gunpoint, leading to Blake chasing Bernie across and over the radio telescope's dish. The dish is tilted right over so Bernie can step off while Blake is left hanging vertically at the top. Bernie runs away and returns the device to Adam, who attempts to contact the Soshun. Mayer and the other children go to Adam, too. The flying saucer receives the signal and is heading toward them. Blake is let off the dish and finds Adam. He tape records Mayer, explaining that Peter was returned to Earth in a coma with a hostile threat from the Soshun and that the radio telescope is now being used to track Soshunists so that it can be destroyed. Mayer volunteers to visit Soshunists to act as a human shield in case of an attack from Earth. Adam also reveals that only a Shoshunite scientist can bring Peter out of his coma. Blake goes back to Lindenberger with the tape recording. Lindenberger reveals that he had planned to take all the Shoshunites to an island, and when the moon was destroyed by the nuclear missiles, no one would have known that they were on Earth. He says Mayer would also have been rich if he had played along. He decides to frame Mayer and make it appear that he was a traitor. He also intends for Blake to kidnap Adam before Nash arrives at the hideout and arrests Mayer and the children. Lindenberger plays the tape to Nash. Adam reveals to Mayer that they have a secret weapon of some sort. As the Shoshunite craft is landing, the henchmen and Blake arrive and kidnap Adam. However, Adam hypnotizes them and retrieves the radio from them. Mayer attempts to board the flying saucer but gets shot by Colonel Nash. The flying saucer takes off without Adam or Mayer. The final episode, episode 12. Colonel Nash takes the wounded mayor and Adam in his car to Lindenberger. Mr. Walsh sneaks away and arrives in Canberra demanding a meeting with the Prime Minister advising him that the weapon that the Soshunites have is their moon. They intend to smash it into Earth if they are not given a place to live. Adam contacts the Soshun again and tells him to destroy the radio telescope. The Soshunites use radio or sound waves to damage the radio telescope and prevent it from tracking Shosunis. Adam and Dr. Kamutsa, a representative of the Secretary General of the UN and some others, 
meet with the Prime Minister. The UN has delegated the role to negotiate to the Prime Minister. Adam uses the radio to speak to the Soshun and pass on the PM's request for a representative to visit the Soshun to discuss a peaceful and harmonious end to this squabble. The Soshun advises he will negotiate only with the children, Jean, Bernie, and Edward. The PM agrees to send the children with Dr. Kamutsa to Sushunis and tells Nash to make sure that the media know nothing of this till it is over. Adam advises that the children will be picked up from the radio telescope and the UN representative from Canberra. The children talk to the Soshun and Jean demands that first the Sushun must bring Peter out of his coma. He agrees to send a body healing scientist to Earth to fix Peter. Lindenberger offers the Prime Minister his private island as a settlement location for the Soshunites for his own gain, but is outmaneuvered by the Prime Minister, forced to relinquish control of the island. A settlement agreement is finally reached, but this is not shown. It is revealed by Adam that the moon could not have been crashed into the Earth successfully as it would have been smashed into small pieces when it came close, and it could never have left as it does not have enough energy to pull away from the Earth's gravity. The following day, Verosa and Adam are paraded down George Street to a civic reception held on the steps of Sydney Town Hall. Adam and Verosa arrive and sit with the Lord Mayor, the children, and Mr. Walsh at the top of the steps. The flying saucer, the small ship, arrives with the Soshun. The mayor welcomes the Soshunites to Sydney and Earth. Adam and Verosa climb into the flying saucer and take off, passing over the uncompleted Sydney Opera House. The Soshun stays behind. Well, thank you very much, Pat Chico, for those stellar recaps of all 12 episodes. And dear God, thank you for braving all that. You're welcome. That was past Chico. That wasn't me. The show was a hit in Australia and was sold back to the BBC where it aired on BBC One Thursdays at 5.25 from February 25th to April 1st, 1965. But it was never repeated. And season two didn't even get an airing. So what happened? I don't know what did happen with this show. It's Australia, so I mean, it got a second series, right? So unless it had some success, it did have a success. It was a really big show in Australia, but I guess it was lost in translation when it went to the UK. I guess people couldn't, you know, follow the story. I watched all of the episodes. By the way, all twelve episodes have been digitally remastered and are available officially for free on the ABC's iView channel on YouTube. It's really something. Oh, yeah, it's kind of a chore to get through. But this show was a bit of pioneering science fiction in that uh, G.K. Saunders, who wrote it, devised a special language that the aliens spoke amongst themselves and, like, shows like Star Trek, Babylon 5, Battlestar Galactica. Aliens were known for speaking English with a 
foreign accent. Adam affects a sort of German-French-Swiss dialect whenever he's speaking English to everybody. And this leads to the children's father's initial assumption that he is from Switzerland. Hence the name Adam Sweeze. The show was also made in cooperation with CSIRO, which is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. So basically the collection of Neil deGrasse Tyson types, Isaac Asimov types. They provided knowledge and the Parks Observatory for all of the production. In fact, they consulted on the design of the alien spacecraft that lands on the steps of the Sydney Town Hall where the aliens are greeted by the Prime Minister, played by a guy by the name of Chips Rafferty. Chips Rafferty? Chips Rafferty, called the living symbol of the typical Australian. His career stretched from the late 1930s until his death in 1971. He was in the 1962 remake of Mutiny on the Bounty, starring Marlon Brando. Oh. Well, that's pretty much it. It had a following to the point where they made a novelization of the show in Australia. And that was it. I mean, they tried to uh, sell it back to the BBC and it just disappeared. It was almost to the point of being a completely lost series, not because the shows were wiped or disposed of, but because it was forgotten, when in 2019, the ABC took all 12 episodes of the show, digitally remastered them, cleaned them up, and this is according to the ABC's Retro Focus service, archived by John Steiner and Helen Meany, They took all 12 episodes, cleaned them up, digitally remastered them, digitally restored them, and put them all on their official YouTube page. So thanks to the ABC in Australia, future generations can, I guess, watch Australia's attempt at Doctor Who with Blackjack and Hookers. It is definitely a capsule of its time, The Stranger. Yes, it was. And I'll tell you right now, some of the special effects definitely looked like they were from a public television broadcast. Oh, definitely. Well, the original Doctor Who, the sets and the special effects looked like they were done on a budget of 100 quid. Because they probably were. It's the BBC. Once they realized Doctor Who was a cash cow, they could put some money into it. So, yeah, they probably did have a budget of about 100 pounds back in, like, 63, 64, 65. But ultimately, were it not for some enterprising folks at the ABC digitally remastering it and put it on YouTube, this show would have been a forgotten thing on TV. But to tie it back to the theme month, did you know, guys, that there was a series of movies titled The Stranger featuring Colin Baker in the title role. Yes, I do know this because now there's a 
complicated video about this series from Quentin Reviews on YouTube about the history of this series. So I would highly recommend you search that out on YouTube. Search The Stranger Quentin Reviews, and he'll tell you the entire history behind the production company behind those videos. But, oh, they are something else. Perhaps a thing on TV for another day. I don't even think it made it to TV. I think it was all direct to video. Oh, they were all straight to video, baby. You think Nick Briggs wanted to be associated with that on TV? No. That was a bit of a deep dive into Australia's answer to Doctor Who and how you can watch it for free officially right now. Wow! Here's some ice cream cakes that only Carvel makes. They're made fresh every day because that's the Carvel way. And while you're at the store, see Cookie for some more. And don't forget about Hug Me the Bear. The friendliest bear. Your participating Carvel dealer also has Hug Me the Bear and Cookie Puss dolls. You'll love them. Thank you. And when you're in Australia, mate, don't forget to get your cookie puss, mate. Please visit them. Thank you. Episode 426, submission number 993, Time Express. Time Express aired on CBS from April 26th to May 17th, 1979 for four episodes. A fourth of a crack block. So that would be 12 less episodes than the Hudson Brothers Razzle show, J.J. Starbuck, Schooled, Misfits of Science, the number of aired episodes of Salvage One, Tiger King, Lil Bush, and of course, Uncle Croc's Block. Now, guys, this is the second episode that starts in April of 1979. You don't want to know what the other one is? Don't say turnabout. Don't say turnabout. No. Oh, good. Few. Oh, yeah. Nice.
Doctor Who was not the first TV series to ask the question, what if you could go back in time? Would you change anything? It just happens to be the one that did it the best. But there was almost an American version of the show in 1979. And the Doctor was almost in the visage of St. Louis's Master of the Macabre himself, Vincent Price. React. React. It would be even better than Vincent Price, guys. If they had a time machine to follow this show, to go into the future, pluck Bill Hader out of the 2000s, and do the Bill Hader Vincent Price impression on this show. Greetings, weary travelers. My name is Vincent Price. Tonight I offer you passage into the darkest recesses of the supernatural. Hark! Do you hear that? Is that the children of the night crying out in unimaginable agony? Or is it... My Thanksgiving special. It's Vincent Price's Thanksgiving Day special. Now, please welcome your nefarious host, the master of horror, Vincent Price. Thanksgiving, a holiday originating with the pagan festival of Grabnashnishnak, where naked, blood-soaked man-beast feasted on the entrails of peasant children. It was either that or the pilgrims came up with it. You know, I, I don't really know. <laughs> I went to a small school. It was just me and two other guys. Well, let's go back to the actual Vincent Price because there's actually, you know, one of the things we like to say on this show is every televised failure has a story. And according to our research, the legend goes that Vincent Price was in the UK working on two films, Dr. Fibes Rises Again and Theater of Blood. Yeah, those sound like Vincent Price movies, don't they? When he saw some early 70s episodes of Doctor Who, it allegedly inspired him to create his own version of the show with himself as the Doctor. Now, hold on. He saw one moment of John Pertwee he said, Listen, Warzel Gummidge. I can do this a lot better than you. Something like that, yeah. Unfortunately for Vincent, he could not snap up the rights from the BBC, and so he developed a format similar to, but legally distinct from Doctor Who, with writers Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts, both of whom have been known for their work on such masterful television series as Mannix, and Charlie's Angels, and future entry Logan's Run. Here's the pitch. Doctor Who, but make it Super Train, traveling through the Twilight Zone. Invite passengers on board a time machine to go back to a critical moment and give them the opportunity to change the past and thereby the future. We don't have a phone box, but this is 1979. We can get a train. Now, hold on a second. Did Keenan Wynn develop this train too? No. 
This is actually peak Vincent Price. It's a ghost train. A ghost. Oh, this is even better. We have a ghost train. Now, the kids, they liked science fiction in 1979. They love the Star Wars. But you know what they also love? Time travel. But not even more than time travel. You know what they also love? Ghosts. So you have all three. You have science fiction. You have time travel. And you have ghosts in one show on a train. Ain't it great? That is fantastic. Mike, doesn't that sound like the greatest idea ever? I'm sold. I'd watch it. And this is an even better pitch than Salvage 1. Because as we all know, I said, if you had pitched me Salvage 1, I said, no, get this stuff out of here. If you had pitched me this, I'd be like, I'm sold. I'm sold on this. Thank you, Vincent Price. Yeah, just wait until we get to how it actually did in the face of its competition. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You see, each episode featured two different characters, each given a ticket to the Time Express with their name, the destination city, and the destination date from an unseen head of the line. And this isn't just any date. This is a date that has exclusive significance or meaning to the bearer of the ticket. They were to report with the ticket to the special services desk at Los Angeles Union Station and present their ticket to the clerk who would direct them to Gate Y, Platform 13, which according to the public board is closed as, and this is the clerk talking, a security measure to keep away anybody who isn't supposed to be there. So once the two passengers of the week descended upon the track, they are greeted with the sight of a sort of ghost train populated by the crew and passengers of the Allegheny Flyer, a train that derailed in 1886, killing everyone on board. Operated by engineer Patrick Callahan and conductor R.J. Walker, who, so far as we know, have died in that train wreck and are still dead. The train's new passengers are hosted by Jason and Margaret Winters, Maggie to her friends, their mortal status heretofore unknown. Jason and Maggie give us the details of their impending miraculous journeys, and after their backgrounds are given, the passengers are sent to their dates given the standard risks and warnings about time travel. From there, the adventure plays out until the critical moment where the passengers change something about the past and experience the consequences therein. After their trip, they return to the station with the knowledge that they had gained the rest of the world none the wiser. So, who do we have on board the Time Express? Well, we already talked about Vincent Price. He plays Jason Winters, the charismatic champagne-sipping host of the train. And his wife, Maggie, is played by his actual wife at the time, Coral Brown. Australian actress. She was actually Vera in 1958's Anti-Mame. 
playing the ticket clerk were Joe Parpy, who was in The Outlaw Josie Wales, Planet of the Apes, and Dirty Harry. That's some resume. But he was in Future Entries, The Yellow Rose, Bay City Blues, and Bring Him Back Alive, and Past Entry, Mr. Merlin. So it kind of balances out. Playing the engineer, Patrick Callahan, William Edward Phipps, who was in The War of the Worlds in 1953, Cinderella in 1950, yes, that's Cinderella in 1950, he voiced Prince Charming. Oh! He was in a litany of previous entries. He was in the Slap Maxwell story. He was in Tucker's Witch. He was in Tales of the Gold Monkey. And not for nothing, he was also on an episode of Jake and the Batman. Was it the episode where William Conrad asked Jake what was in the cheese Danish? What was in the Danish? He knew it was cheese if it was in the Danish. Could I have a problem with cheese? Well, hold on a second. A cherry Danish, that's going to be no problem for the fat man. If it was a cherry cheese Danish, that would give him a lot of problems. Oh, no. Well, I think if it's a cherry cheese Danish, since you have presumably equal parts cherry and cheese, it would only give him half the issues of a full cheese Danish. Right? Right. Yeah. So cherry cheese Danishes give him a little bit of problems, but not as bad as full-on cheese danishes. And rounding out the cast as R.J. Walker is James Reynolds, who was on 2,758 episodes from 1981 to 2023 of Days of Our Lives. He was also on a 2015 episode of Wheel of Fortune, a 2013 episode of Top Chef Masters, a 2002 episode of Weakest Link, and five episodes, that is one week's worth of episodes of previous entry, Go. Oh, that's fantastic. Go. He was all over the place, but he's primarily known for his work on Days of Our Lives. Hey, guys, you forgot something. He was on a week of hot potato as well. Shut the f*** up, Mike. He was on a week of hot potato with Bill Cullen. I feel honored to have been told to go f*** myself by Johnny Olsen. <laughs> the ghost of Johnny Olsen. Probably one of the hundred people on the board the train when it derailed back in 1886. You're damn right I was on that train, too. Everybody got your tickets? Let's take a trip. Episode 1. Garbage Man and the Doctor's Wife. Wait, hold on a second. We all know the Doctor's Wife is River's song. Wrong Doctor. Oh. By the way, this being an anthology series, there are several people who make the rounds on such anthology series playing you know, guest shots. 
So let's talk about these various passengers and their various trips. We going on our journey, son! Episode 1. The Garbage Man and the Doctor's Wife. Edward Chernoff returns to Cleveland in 1969 to return $2,000,000 that he found in the garbage. Time out. Mike, is this a common thing in Cleveland where people put money in the garbage? Okay, I was just going to say that. There's no chance in hell anybody just left money in the garbage in Cleveland. None. Well, actually, you know, 69. Nice. Damn it! (laughs) I wasn't going there. But anyhow, as I was saying, in 1969, you probably did have some mafia types, the Irish mafia and the Italian mafia and the Russian mafia. You had different mafias, so it's possible maybe... $2 million got thrown into a trash can for some reason. And in our second story, Dr. Mark Toland returns to search for his wife's brother, who he needs for a life-saving operation. Playing Edward Chernoff, comedy royalty, Jerry Stiller. What else can we say about Jerry Stiller? We don't need to say anything about Jerry Stiller. Comedy royalty is all you need to say. And playing his wife, Gloria, and Mira, also comedy royalty. You know, you put a Jerry Stiller and an Ann Mira in the room, you know what you get? Gold. You get Ben Stiller, that's what you get. And hilarity. And playing Dr. Mark Toland in the second story, Dano himself. James MacArthur. In other assorted roles, we have Michael Conrad of Hill Street Blues, Alan Sues, and John Delancey. Okay, we all know what's coming here. <laughs> so, Chico, just get it out. Just say it. Yeah, John Delancey, who played Q in the Star Trek universe. Did you know I went to college with his kid? We are both graduates. Of the University of North Carolina. Okay, Chico. That's sort of the equivalent of me and my story about how I sat next to Joe Esterhaus at the hardball taping and was just like fawning over him because he wrote the cinematic masterpiece of 1995, Showgirls. I've never told that story before. Cinematic masterpiece, prove me wrong. Just like the time I held Matt Trainer's water while signing autographs outside of Shea Stadium once. That's what you're going to hang your hat on? I don't know. This sort of reads like a Coca-Cola commercial in the making here. Well, guys, he is married to Miss D. May, so. That's true. He is. It's a fact. Episode 2. The Copywriter and the Figure Skater. Two years ago, a shy, timid, awkward, and clumsy man who works for an ad agency who went to Paris for a shoot meets the beautiful model and is smitten with her. But after fumbling on their first meeting, he thinks he blew it. But she later comes to see him, and she invites him out, but gets the address mixed up. He arrives late, and she left thinking he stood her up. Now he wants another chance. And in the second story, a young skater 
who three years ago, while competing in Montreal, meets another skater, and there's an obvious connection. They want to pursue a relationship, but a woman who claims to be with him tells her, and she leaves, regretting it. Our first story, with Sam Loring as the uh, Love Lauren ad man, is played by Richard Mazur. Again, big-time guest star. Our second story, a figure skater named Michelle Fleming is played by uh, John Lovitz's wife, uh, Morgan Bearchild. Yeah, that's the ticket. Hold on. Gene, do you have anything to say about Morgan Fairchild? You're gorgeous. He ain't lying. And I'm just glad to hear that this week. Since the 40th anniversary of Match Game Hollywood Squares' premiere was on Halloween. That's right. But you know what that means? We're about a week and a half away from the 40th anniversary of Magnificent Beard Guy getting the $30,000 on back-to-back days. Not to mention the appearances of Katie the Tomato and a young Butch Hartman. Well, Butch Hartman will be, I think, early January. So we got about two months to go there. Oh, my gosh. Are we going to do that for the next, like, nine months? Just like this day in match game history 40 years ago, Katie the Tomato was on. No, 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 no. We have another bit planned for the winter months. But let's not be remiss and mention in December around Christmas. That also means we're going to have the 40th anniversary. Of Tom Poston taking a nap during the <laughs> super match. What guys have took a nap 40 years ago? Yeah, Tom, you took a nap 40 years ago during the super match. Oh, I took a nap during the super match. Oh no. There it is. <laughs> and, and Tom, you've been taking a perpetual dirt nap for the last 15. <laughs> oh, dude. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Somebody had to break the news to you, and I thought it would be best if a friend did. Okay. I'm basically looking at the guest roster for this second episode. It is amazing. Why did they oh. lead off with this one? Th- this, like The show itself is sort of arranged <laughs> that you can run any of them in any order, and they didn't even run this one. Some of the guest stars in this episode. Lee Merriweather. Lyle Wagoner. Roger Till, Gino Conforti, and a pre-Berlin Terry Nunn. Wow, that list is so exciting. Mike had to take a cough during it. I didn't know we were actually still uh, recording. Or not necessarily recording, but you know, live, whatever. It's live, pal. It's live, pal. I know, I know it's live, but... I thought we were still sort of in a transition phase talking about this day and match came out with squares. You know what? You can leave all that stuff in this date and match because that'll make this episode even more fun here. This is a fun episode, Mike. I'm glad you're here. I really am. This is definitely an episode. Episode three, The Rodeo and the Cop. A rodeo writer returns to 1977 when he was injured, creating an unstable living situation for his daughter. 
and an L.A. detective returns to 1973 when he got shot in the arrest of a suspected diamond thief. But was the suspect really guilty? Playing the cop, John Slocum, Robert Hooks. And guys, you know what this means. What does this mean, Greg? I get a chance to show this off again. Oh, yeah. Please explain to the folks at home what that is. I am holding in my hand an autographed Star Trek card from Rittenhouse of Robert Hooks from Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. But hold on a second. Since I haven't had a chance to show this off in the tapings, a couple weeks ago at a card show in Hofstra, I got this card. It is an autographed top Star Wars card of John Ratzenberger from The Empire Strikes Back. That's right. John Ratzenberger was in The Empire Strikes Back. Did he do, like, outer space mail delivery? Was he, like, the Star Wars Cliff Clavin? Someone had to give the Rebel Alliance their mail. Hashtag 22,000 outer space big ones. Hold on a second. I can say this with confidence. Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, and Chewbacca have not and never will be in my kitchen. Or as John Ratzenberger's character on Star Wars would say, who are three people who've never been in my transporter pod? Mike, I am surprised and impressed. I'm surprised at myself, too. I thought I was just pulling that out of my ass. Damn! I actually like made a relevant Star Wars reference. I I, I don't know. Anyway, no, I don't think any of us know what the. It's just some. Oh God. Okay. But we're not done yet. Because we still have to talk about the rodeo cowboy guy by the name of Roy Culper was played by John Beck, who is best known for his work as Moon Pie in Rollerball. The original, not the Chris Evans remake. No, the Chris Klein remake. Damn it, I got my Chris's mixed up again. This morning, I got Chris Evans mixed up with Chris Pratt. Now I'm getting Chris Evans mixed up with Chris Klein. There are too many Chris's in Hollywood. Too many Chris's, too many Chris's, too many. How'd you get him mixed up with America's ass? In 2001, Chico, while Chris Klein was doing rollerball, Chris Evans was doing opposite sex and commercials for GSN. And Chris Pratt was just looking for his big break. Other guest stars include Marsha Strasman, Vic Tabak in the cop story as the corrupt chief of police, Chris Mulkey, Lucille Benson, and, as John Beck's daughter, Billy Jane, Kyle Richards. Oh, so now we just give us an excuse to bring up Hello Larry. It also gives us an no, excuse. that's Cam Richards. Oh, whatever. Cam that gives, this gives us a, an excuse to bring up Down to Earth, because she was in Down to Earth before, you know, the Bravo bug came in bitter. Okay, this does give us an excuse to talk about this smudge catch meme. Yes! I was waiting for this! Yes! 
I was waiting for somebody to mention the smudge cat meme. Oh, Greg, you just turned this into like one of the best episodes of all time. We get to mention smudge and uh, Kim Richards and Kyle Richards, the, the pointing and the cat eating the vegetables. Oh my gosh. You know what we're talking about, people. You've seen the smudge memes with the, the, the women pointing and the cat just sort of giving that face with the, the plate of uh, vegetables. You know what we're talking about. And if you don't, use Google, please. Love my smudge memes. Hold on. I need to mention, Mike, you told us in the chat today about how you mentioned to the kids about wheelchair Jimmy. That's what I've referred to him as, yes, in lieu of actually using his real name, yes. Did they know what wheelchair Jimmy was? No, they were like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, Drake was on Degrassi, and he played a character named Jimmy who was wheelchair-bound. And they're like, no, he wasn't. It's like, why would I make this up? And then some kid, I think he went on either IMDb or uh, Google Images, and there's the picture of Drake in the wheelchair. It's like, I wouldn't lie to you guys. So, yeah, I just, like, dashed all their hopes and dreams thinking that Drake is such a good person. Uh, no, he was the wheelchair Jimmy, but also he's a friggin' groomer. Facts. He did. Look at Millie Bobby Brown. Hey, John Ponchovi's kid has taken her. Thank you very much. One name that you didn't mention, playing Lorraine Cole in this episode, was Anne-Marie Martin. Played Dory DeRoe in 41 episodes of eventual cover Sledgehammer. But also, because the 40th anniversary of this show was earlier this week, she was on a weekend match game at Hollywood Squares Hour in 1984. Wait until we get to that entry in this week in Match Game Hollywood Squares history. Plus, also, she was on a week ago and a week of hot potato. I know I don't sound like you. Screw you. Shut the hell up, you son of a bitch. Those are some of the shit impressions of me that I've <laughs> ever heard my entire life. Oh my god. And now the final episode, The Boxer and Death. Death of a series. <laughs> the Am jokes I... write themselves. Am I wrong? No. A lawyer returns to San Francisco on July 12th, 1976 to find out what happens to the woman he still loves. And an ex-prize fighter and his wife returned to New York on May 17, 1969, when he was coerced into throwing a fight in the fifth round. So the lawyer, Michael Bennett, is played by Steve Keneally from, of course, the Dallas. I was hoping it would be played by the former football player, Michael Bennett, or the senator, Michael Bennett. The woman he loves... Liv Stone is played by Jamie Lynn Bauer, known for 523 episodes of Days of Our Lives. Not as many as James Reynolds, I'm afraid. 
The prize fighter, Tony Marcello, is played by Paul Sylvan, who is in 21 episodes of future entry Busting Loose, not to be confused with future entry Bustin' Loose, and two episodes of Laverne and Shirley, where he played a guy named Sal Molina. There's actually another place that our listeners would have seen him as a semi-frequent guest. IMDb says he was on 31 episodes of To Say the Least, the Tom Kennedy show back in 1977 and 78. I love that show the most, to say the least. It's a good show, and I don't think it's on our list, and I don't know if I want to necessarily add it. I love that show. I'll leave it to the master of the list to make that call. Well, there's three masters of the list, so... Mm. Yeah, we'll have to put that up to a debate, but hey, we don't need to debate. We need to close this stupid Wait, show out. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. No, I have to talk about his wife. Go talk about his wife then. Okay, playing his wife, Lisa Marcello, Linda Scruggs, who is in two episodes of Baba Black Sheep or Black Sheep Squadron, if you want to get syndicated about this. Seven episodes of previous entry Whiz Kids, and one episode of future entry Get Christy Love. Yeah, they pretty much saved their weakest episode for last because the only other names I could find are John Van Drelen, and that's only because he was mentioned in the credits. So, what happened to this show? Well, CBS put it on the schedule for Thursday night at 8. And it almost immediately derailed in the face of competition from Mork and Mindy and previous entry Angie. Oh, more than that, though. Please do elaborate, Mike. Well, on the first episode, yes, it did go up against Mork and Mindy and Angie. But on NBC, it went up against possible future entry His Honor. But also at 8.30, the Ed McMahon mystery game show, Whodunit. And I know Greg's talked about it in the past because Whodunit didn't last here very long, but it lasted a long time in the UK. But to tie it back in, who hosted the original UK version of Whodunit? It was a doctor. I don't remember which doctor, but it was a doctor. John Pertwee. Third doctor. CBS gave it four episodes in that time slot before putting Time Express in the roundhouse for good, setting the cause of train-based entertainment back until at least Shining Time Station premiered. Well, I will add one thing, taking a look at listings. This was listed as a limited time series, so it doesn't sound like they gave it a 13-episode order. This may have just been filler in mid to late spring. So not really a summer series per se, but also not like a replacement series per se. A stopgap, if you will. Yeah, I mean, if it did well, then they could go back and order some more. And if it didn't, then no harm done. Because I watched the episodes. They were not the most expensive things to produce on television. 
I mean, you had like the train set, you had like existing Los Angeles Union Station that you could shoot at, and then you had all of the uh, sets that you could just tape, well, anywhere. And given that the show lasted all of four episodes, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who would even remember it. It wasn't ever given a proper home release. And I don't think that if Vincent Price were here with us, he would talk about it. Of course, this being his first, last, and only live-action television show. Of course, we're not going to talk about the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, although we could. But... Before the advent of the internet, it was all but forgotten by everyone involved. However, you can watch all four episodes of Time Express Online for free if you know where to look. Not a you site, but a me site. Wink, wink. Oh, I get it. Hoping to capitalize on both the Love Boat's success and Super Train's failure, the Time Express came... And then went. And it became a thing on TV. But we're not done yet because Joey Gallo, that's old and busted. What's the new hotness, Greg? That's right, Chico. Because for the winter, Joey Gallo's gone. But who can we get that we lovingly talk about in these Zoom chats for a new segment this winter. Conan O'Brien? No, he has a friend. Oh, I know. It's time for the first ever Russell Westbrook update. Russell Westbrook, he can sure score triple doubles, but he sure as hell can't think straight. When he's trying to make a pass, it's the Russell Westbrook update. He's not the best crook. He's a Westbrook. Russell Westbrook. Yeah, I like yours better. So we're five games as of the time we're recording this on November 3rd into the NBA season for the Clippers. In his first game of the season, Russ had 11 points against the Portland Trailblazers on October 25th. On October 27th against the Jazz, he scored only four points. That's sad. On October 29th against the Spurs, where the Clippers won by 40, he scored 19 points. On Halloween against the Magic, the Clippers won by 16 he scored 18 points. So he was basically the winning difference. Yeah. Congratulations to him. But then on Wednesday, though, the Clippers, they bore lead to the Lakers and lost 130 to 125. And he scored 24 points. So let's see. One, two, three, four. So four of his five games, he scored in double figures. And... I should note, at the time we're recording this, who did the Clippers just add? Can we just say, like, renowned ball hog James Harden? Who's on, what, his 10th team now? Not that many, but it just seems like it. Let's see. OKC, then he went to Houston. 
And then from Houston, he went to New Jersey. And then from New Jersey, he went to Philadelphia. And now he's in Los Angeles with the Clippers. So that should be five. Correction. Brooklyn. They've been the Brooklyn Nets for about... Did I call them New Jersey? Yeah, you did. I know they've been in Brooklyn for the last, like, 15 years. Dang. Well, old habits are tough to break. I'm sorry. But still, fifth team in his career. So, let's get something straight. Who's going to get all the shots between him, Russ, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard? That's a good question. I don't have an answer for that. Wait, is DeAndre Jordan still with the Clippers? No, he's with Denver. Oh. So he got his title last year. He got a ring. Yeah, see? Now they finally paid off the bit from the frickin' uh, State Farm commercial where he was in Dragon with say, they took all my rings. Well, you ain't got no rings. Can't use that bit anymore. No, but you can still use it for Chris Paul. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us here, and it was a thing on TV. Of course, our celebration of Doctor Who continues for the next month or so. Editor's note, two in the next three weeks, not the next month. But anyway, if you want to go back in time, you can always visit it. was a thing on TV.com. You can listen to the 425 episodes that preceded this one. All sorts of bonuses, minisodes, live shows, extended versions, instant reactions. And don't forget, you want to follow us on all social media as well at It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was A Thing On TV podcast. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed. Apple, TuneIn, iHeart, Audible, you name it, we're there. And don't forget, we are also on YouTube, where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit the notification bell to be informed on all future uploads, including what's coming up on the podcast next time. So last week, we had things that featured Doctor Who actors. This week, we had things that featured Doctor Who concepts, just, you know, stuff about aliens and time travel, whatever. Next week... We're going for the mothership. We have two actual Doctor Who entries. The first is a classic series-long arc. And then there's the second one that was lost until about 10 years or so ago. When Well, well let me get some straight. There's going to be a long explanation for this. So it's a bunch of episodes. Some have been partially found. And some are still lost. I'll explain all that next week. So our celebration of the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who continues next week on It Was a Thing on TV. For Greg, for Mike, I'm Chico. Thank you ever so much for listening. Please be kind to one another, and we will see you for the next one. Row! What would you do if you could travel back in time and relive a turning point in your life? It's possible aboard the Time Express. A doctor must find a mysterious man from his wife's past. I'm asking you to save her life. I'm gonna die? Our second passenger is a garbage man who bags a fortune. There are two million dollars here. And I'm giving back every penny of it. 
Join me and my passengers on the Time Express, Thursday at 8, 7 Central and Mount. The Time Express. Definitely not Super Train. Not even a mediocre train. It's a train going to nowhere. Ding.